brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Thanks to Sana Skin Studio for supporting The No Podcast. Sana is a skin studio that is shifting the relationship with your skin and your products through goal-driven facials, real guidance, and clean skincare. Stay tuned for our promo code so you can receive $25 off of your first facial at Sana Skin Studio. Welcome to The No Podcast with me, Nikki Spo. Okay, Light Beams, this is a theme today, Light Beams. You are a theme, Light is a theme, and my guest today, Noor Jahan, is the beacon. You are listening to The Know, where it's not about knowing everything, it's about coming to know ourselves. I'm your hostess, Nikki Spo, and I'm so excited for you to tune into this super inspiring conversation. While you're here, don't forget to click that subscribe button and make a count. Noor Jahan Tort is a goddess. Noor Jahan the embodiment of her name radiates enthusiasm and a newfound appreciation for herself and her diverse background. Growing up in Southern California, she yearned for an all-American experience, often comparing herself to the girls on TV, and in doing so, she failed to embrace her own cultural and family heritage, constantly feeling less than. Approaching her 39th year, Noor Jahan has embarked on a transformative journey, finally recognizing and embracing her true self. She proudly identifies as an American-born daughter of Indian Muslim immigrants, understanding that her roots are not something to apologize for. The burden of not feeling Indian enough around her Hindu and Sikh friends or Muslim enough around her Arab and Pakistani Muslims has been lifted. Noor Jahan has let go of the exhausting habit of apologizing for her Middle Eastern last name, which became a symbol of her supposed lack of Americanness after the events of 9-11. Unafraid of complexities, Noor Jahan proudly wears the label of a walking paradox. Her love for her Indian culture is unwavering while her heart's desire led her to marry outside of her community. Similarly, she cherishes the values instilled by her parents' Islamic faith and feels grateful for their daily prayers. Yet, she has struggled with her own faith throughout her life. This internal battle became her teenage angst as she never fully embraced religion like her loved ones did effortlessly. Navigating the intricacies of her identity, which so many of us can relate to, Noor Jahan has had to reconcile the double life that she has led, one for herself and another to appease her community and family. It was through soul-searching, numerous missteps, and the unwavering love of those who truly understood her that she finally arrived at a place where she could feel completely authentic. Noor Jahan emerged as this shining beacon, unapologetically embracing her true self and becoming a true light in this world. That is what really the Know with Nikki Spo is all about, is coming to this sense of deep inner knowing within ourselves, which we all long for in some capacity. I can't wait for you to get to know her. She inspires TF out of me, and I'm honored to experience her light today. So let's get started. Nurjahan, welcome so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that intro and just for your light. That was amazing. And you're very inspiring, even in just saying that. Just reading about you and learning about you, like 
I have not experienced what you have experienced in the same ways you experienced them. It almost moves me to tears to read about your struggles because I think, you know, when I hear people talking and I talk to so many people, it's like I think that we all have this desire to feel seen and understand ourselves and feel loved for who we are when we don't even know who we are. And like really trying to, I think a lot of us are just trying to find that space where we can come home to ourselves, you know? And I mean, from what I've read, like, it seems like you're doing that. So like, talk to us about that. Talk to us about that. You know, it's it's really interesting. You just, you said the word trauma and immediately in my head, I started apologizing. I was like, but I haven't had a traumatic childhood or life. And so I almost felt like an imposter when you said that. And that's the problem, right? And I remember listening to one of your episodes about micro trauma and major traumas. And there's these things in your life that feel like micro traumas, but we might not want to acknowledge them because we feel like we're taking away from someone's major trauma. Um, But to be very clear, I I feel like when I look back, I've had a wonderful life. I've had a wonderful childhood. I did not, you know, experience um, major traumas, but the struggle with my identity was so real. It's that empathy I feel for anyone who always says, I just knew I was different when I was born. Everyone can feel that way. And and I, I felt that so quickly in my childhood. Like I remember being little and carrying guilt with me constantly. Like, I, like my core childhood memories are being four and five and coming home from school and thinking, okay, I did this wrong, did this wrong, I did this wrong. Where does that come from? I think it came from being born in Southern California, surrounded by this all-American childhood and school experience, but then also being born into um, a Muslim community and an Indian community. So, you know, on one hand, I'm going to school and my dad and mom are telling me, we want you to embrace everything there is about being American because we came to this country because we want you and your brother to have that American experience and that life. And we want you to have all those opportunities. But then you wake up on Saturday and you're in Quran classes where I was learning the Quran, learning how to read Arabic so I could learn the Quran for two hours. And then we would go to our Muslim community that was two hours away and attend the mosque at Islamic school. And so that was that constant feeling of okay, I want this all-American experience and I have this crush on a boy and I'm only five, but I shouldn't be having a crush on a boy because Islamic school is telling me that we can't. So I think that's where it came from. The guilt started very early and not that it was intentionally imposed on by my parents either, right? They were immigrants trying to figure it out too. Yeah, one of my closest friends and she was a a guest on the show, Kenya Raymer. Her mom is white and her dad is black and she rushed for a black sorority and in the hierarchy of the sororities there's like this is a real black sorority right and i think she like just being growing up with her and hearing about her experiences with it it was like she never felt black enough to be part of the black community and she wasn't white like she didn't she was not physically like a white person like she felt like she did not fit in in a white space And I remember just like really just being an observer in her life and listening to her journey because it is very far from what I as a white Latino have experienced in my life and just witnessing her growth through that space and how she has made her own identity, you know, through the space of like where she feels she belongs and creating that for herself. And so 
whether that's relevant in the sense that we're going to put this in like that tidbit in the show, like it's not complete. It's not lost on me. Like this idea of living a double life. It's absolutely relevant. And there's so many layers to that, too, in the sense that you're trying to carve your own identity when you're given two identities to try to align with. And I always used to say, I always thought my brother and I straddled these two worlds growing up, but we actually straddled three, right? It was this being children of Indian immigrants. Okay. So we had our Indian community and our Indian friends. And when we grew up in that community, it was the safest, happiest, most amazing experiences and childhood memories. But it wasn't until I left home that I realized, oh, actually, I'm different from my Indian friends because they're all Hindu and Sikhs. And now my brother and I are getting older and it seemed like it was the natural time for the, our parents to remind us of, okay, there are some differences between our religious values and, you know, their their religious values. Namely, it's a lot about like no dating, no partying, no drinking, and what the clothes you wear, and all of these things. And then it suddenly became okay. Now we have this Muslim identity that we have to reconcile, and um, the hierarchy of where you choose right? Because I would see my parents embracing the Indian culture so much. They are so Indian. They, they love their culture. Uh, they're in the embodiment of it. But so much of the Indian culture, and a lot of people don't realize this, is influenced a lot by the Hindu religion. So I'm growing up going, okay, my parents love Indian culture. We're going to all of these Indian parties that are celebrating like Diwali and Holi and Nikki. Those are all Hindu festivals, but we're Indian. So we're going to them and we're celebrating them. And then suddenly... It's like, okay, well, now it's Ramadan. So it's time to observe Ramadan, which is your Islamic religion. So so your messaging that you're receiving as a child is like one of confusion. Like, I am very confused. Very confused and feeling guilty of like, are you going to disappoint your parents or which community are you going to disappoint or which one do you fit into? And then I like what you said about your friend, a hierarchy. Which one am I going to choose? And I, I, I will say that there was times very clear in our lives where I felt like, and I don't want to speak for him, but I felt like my brother chose the Islamic identity and I chose Indian identity. What unspoken judgment like went on between everybody in the mix? You know, like if any at all, like was there unspoken judgment of like, this is what I think is right versus this is what you think is right. And like, was there space for you to carve out a middle path for yourself? I I don't think that I felt there was space for a middle path. And it's not because my parents weren't allowing for it. It's that I didn't even assume that there could be one just because the reinforced message within like, let's say the religious community mm-hmm. was this is the path. This is the path. Right. And when I observed other people my age, it was this is the path. And so everything that's not allowed on this path, we're just going to do it quietly or we're going to do it in secret or we're just going to get it out of our system so that we can then follow our but path. But then there's a lot of shame in that too. Like there's a lot of shame that we carry when we're like doing things in secret. Even though I did do a lot of things, like I was carrying this double life, I got stubborn. But I was like, I don't want to be hypocritical. If I'm not going to do this, I'm not doing it. And if I am going to do something, I'm going to do that. It felt weird to to be going from like, clubbing all night to like waking up for your sunrise prayers. I was like, okay, I I think I laid a stake in the ground. Like I'm going, I I party, I go out, I have fun in LA. I'm not exactly praying five times a day. Like I just laid that stake in the ground where I had friends who were like, it's fine. Yes, we partied. We had a great time. We wore our crop tops. We went out to the clubs. And you know what? We're going to show up to prayers on Friday. And I had such a struggle with that. And, And they did not. And so maybe that's how they carved their middle path, but it, that that also didn't feel right to me. 
And I think that's why I didn't feel like there was a path for. No, it's interesting because like not a lot of people know this about me, but my dad was raised Jehovah's Witness and that community has its own stereotypes, right? Like the people knocking on the door and like they're going to come and try to like bring you over to their side, whatever. Like there's a million things. But by the time I came around, my, my mom didn't really have a faith that she attached herself to. And my dad had kind of like let go of his Jehovah's Witness upbringing. And so my family like celebrated Christmas, but like we didn't really go to church. And I was like, what? I remember thinking, having a conversation with my dad where I was like, OK, so like what happens when you die? And he's like, they put you in the ground and the worms eat your body. And I'm thinking that makes sense to me, like on a logical, like physical level. That makes sense to me. But I always personally yeah. had like this really strong desire to know what happened to like my spirit and my soul and all these things. And I didn't really have access to that. But nevertheless like not having access to it like they were generally very like open-minded like oh you have a jewish friend like go to the go to jewish camp with with your jewish friend over the summer yes. like oh you have a christian friend yeah. go to, to christian camp over the summer like go i went through this phase where i was like i think i'm buddhist and then they're like getting getting me buddhist books and like they're like just figure figure it out you know like i definitely remember thinking like what the f is going on like what the f is going on and anytime i tell people that my dad was, was raised jehovah's witness people are like oh like there's some like weird thing about it. And it's really funny because I now have like a like a bunch of Jehovah's Witness individuals like have come into my life. Like and I think it's just really funny and cyclical, like how the world and the universe like just just work. And so I've had an opportunity to relearn a lot of these things that like felt foreign, but like actually weren't that foreign to me in my own upbringing. Oh, and also when you're when you're young and you're trying to find your identity, you fall into, like I said, apologizing or the stereotypes, right? Like, oh, totally. oh yeah, Ugh, I don't want to say my parents are Muslim because people are going to generalize. And instead, now it's like such a point of pride to say, yes, my parents are of that Muslim faith and they're the coolest people. But it took a long time to get there. And what you said about Christmas, imagine me coming home. So not only Indian community, Muslim community, my parents made this decision to put my brother and I in Catholic school. Oh, my God. So- he were in Catholic school for our entire pre-K through until we got to high school. And so here I am going to Bible class and choir. And I just said, I'm like, I want to celebrate Christmas. And my Indian grandfather in India, his birthday was on Christmas. So and there's many Catholics in, in India. So we would go to India and see Christmas being celebrated. So then my parents said, yeah, we'll celebrate Christmas. So I was also celebrating Christmas at home. But I think I was always confused. But when I when I talked to my parents as I got older, I think their assumption was if we give her some stability and for them, they assumed that we didn't leave our home to come to this country for you to just be with like one type of community, go experience everything, make friends with everyone. But I think they just assumed that the stabilizing force amongst our you know, core family would be the core religious values, that they wouldn't have to reinforce that. Like, this is this is what we are. This is who we are. But everything else, you know, embrace. I didn't go down that path. Um, and that was hard for my parents. I think that like now now that I'm a mom, I'm like, it's really hard. Like, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. Like everybody, I think that everybody's kind of like doing their best and they don't like know that we need these things, you know, until like you actually experience it yourself. And like, I think our our generation is like a lot more awake to these things. And we're like, oh, OK, wait, 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 wait. 
We now know yeah. that like children make up their own stories if you don't provide them with information. Like we will come up with our own thing. And that's why like it's so th- this communication between parents and children is so important that we don't leave things ambiguous. It's great for that for older children to like explore their identity and who they are. Yeah. But like not to create like an empty hole for children to put their own negative perspective on it and you you talk about that like where you felt the guilt like that nobody was maybe maybe nobody was explaining this to you right but you carried the guilt you filled that that little hole with guilt and shame and judgment or whatever you did with it like as our generation grows and improves ourselves and our mindset and the things that we know now that we didn't know before like we can really create that for the generations that come after us I want to know like how things were for you we talked about it a little bit but like specifically after 9-11 9-11 happened uh, right before I was leaving for college. So I was on this precipice of, yes, I am finally getting to move out of our small town. I'm going to go live on my own. I was so excited. I was ready to rebel. I was ready to do all things. not feel guilt for doing, yeah, you know, like openly live that double life if, if that's even a thing, right? I was so excited. And then 9-11 happened. And growing up in a small town, I we never experienced any kind of prejudice or bias for being Indian or being Muslim or our last name. We really did not. Um, suddenly I go, I moved to Los Angeles and it's, it's very diverse, very diverse campus. I went to UCLA. Um, but suddenly there was all these classes being offered to the incoming students and, you know, current students to cope and to understand what happened and to manage it and to deal with it. Everyone felt compelled, like you have to take these classes on 9-11 and understand everything. And the and I got very self-conscious. I remember I was like a freshman in one of these seminars. That's what they call. There was all these seminars being offered and I attended. And I just remember that the teacher just like asked me a question just because they saw my last name. And I got so self-conscious. Oh. And I really do think that is the reason why when I told you there was a hierarchy between are you identifying with your Indian community or your Muslim community that my brother and I were faced with. And I think that is why I identified with the Indian community. Right. Wow. As soon as the person said that, I said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really know much. I, I'm Indian. And then I like stuck with my Indian friends and I joined the Indian Student Union. And, and I saw my older brother who had already been in college. He was joining. Um, he had joined both Indian Student Union, Muslim Student Association. He was involved in both. And I just I steered clear. I said, I don't know. This is completely going against what I had decided for myself. And also uh, my brother was applying to medical school at that time. And he needed to get on flights to attend his medical school interviews. And this is the first time we experienced the real prejudice where it's fear. He could not get on planes because he was a single young guy in the, in his 20s, single Indian Muslim man. He could not get on planes. What do you mean he could not? They, they wouldn't let him on the flights. They literally would take him into secondary customs and they would not let him on flights because he had to go for these interviews very soon after 9-11. And his name is Faisal Ali. Ahmed. So they were not letting him on planes. They would take him into secondaries and he would miss his flights. And then he'd have to reschedule med school interviews to the point that my mother and I attended. We were flying with him. So it would make him look less suspicious, a single Muslim guy traveling by himself. And to this day, I mean, you know, when I started dating my husband, he didn't believe me. But to this day, I get taken to secondaries. Uh, we're in the process of changing my last name on my passport, but because you want to, um, you know what? And maybe it's because of everything I just talked about. Yeah. But yes, for a very for since I was little, I wanted to change my last name. I know I don't know. It's very, I know there's a different point of view from different women, but since I was little, and here's the other confusing thing, Nikki. Even my father said, 
okay, once he knew that my husband, Hunter, and I were engaged, he said, okay, Noor, just get legally married so you can change your last name. That's wild. Isn't it? This man who's so proud of who he is and he's so proud of his faith and he's so proud of what he's done in this country was so eager for me to not have his last name because he knows how much of an issue it has been for um, his children. You know, like there's a lot of talk about like white fragility and I'm sitting here and it like really reopens my eyes to like the privilege that I've experienced in my life just by being like a white female. And I'm like listening to these stories and I'm cringing and I'm like, they they are making me uncomfortable. Like I am finding myself currently like uncomfortable, right? Just hearing you. And it brings my white fragility to the forefront because I'm like, you didn't have to experience this. And it makes me yeah. uncomfortable. And I think about like how many people out there, like just instead of having conversations that make them feel uncomfortable, they just turn the blind eye and they'd rather not do these yeah. things. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. It's like not even fair for me to be uncomfortable, but I'm like, I think I come from it from an empathetic place and a place of compassion where I'm yeah. like, I'm uncomfortable and I'm disgusted and I'm sad. I'm deeply like sad that this is the way that it is and has been for so long. I got to be honest with you. You know, people have very similar reactions that you're having and it didn't maybe anger me the way it should have or it angered others. Because what I found myself doing is I directed that anger and that angst at my community, at the faith, right? Instead of feeling the anger towards what may have been narrow-mindedness or ignorance right. or fear, I, I, you know, I remember even before 9-11, right? I was feeling these like this confusion about my identity. So 16 or 17 years old, the 9-11 happening reinforced yeah. my frustration yeah. with being in this like chasm. I was like, why did I have to have this yeah. last name? Why is it me? Like, why did I get born into Indian Muslim family? Why couldn't I have just been Pakistani Muslim? And I think that like pushed me and like so I was chasing. I was just running away from all of this. And that, that's basically what my experience was then in college. I just ran away from all of it. And it all the decisions I made, like the people I hung out with, the classes I took, the people I dated, all because I was running away from um, the things that I thought were less than. So how did you get to a space then where you came to like home to yourself and you like fully accept who you are today and let that be like what makes you like let that be your magic? I, you know, was thinking about that and you're giving my intro. I think there wasn't just this one moment. Yeah. I really do think a big turning point for me was moving across the country from my parents. They have always been supportive, even through the struggles. Right. I mean, it's not always been easy. It's not always been pretty. We're glossing over that. It's been ugly at times. When I chose to move across the country, they were very supportive. And I've never asked that when I should that I think part of them also felt like this will be healthy for both parties involved if she moves further. And when I settled in New York, I felt a sense of freedom. Because even when I had moved to LA, like my parents were still in Southern California, I still felt very surrounded by both communities, Indian, Probably. Muslim. And I still felt very like on edge. And here I came to New York and I just felt free. And I felt like, oh my gosh, I can be whoever I want to be. It's like what people experience when they go to college, but I was yeah. experiencing it in grad school. And then I started gradually realizing that who I am isn't this terribly bad person. Like I have, I started seeing like, as I'm getting older, I mirror my parents' values, which were values that you respected. Yes. The morals and values that they instilled in me Yes, they came from their faith, but I respected them and I was, you know, honoring them in my own way. And, you know, I was like, wait, you know, 
I don't think I'm that bad of a person, but I think I had it in my head as a little girl that I was bad. I don't think I'm that bad of a person. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's that's because I just thought I was just the worst. I was like, I am the worst. And so let me just embrace it and live. And OK, but and here's the crazy thing about that is like, I think a lot of people feel inherently bad. I grew up thinking I was inherently bad. Like, and I think a lot of that has to do with like sin. I've fortunately I've come to a place where I'm like, I don't believe that I'm bad anymore, you know, and that's been like really, really freeing. Like, so I can, yeah. I can imagine I can relate to what you're saying. Like whatever the reasons are, right. You have very different reasons than, than I have. Like yeah. I remember feeling inherently bad. And I remember coming to a place where I was like, I am not bad. Like, holy shit. I am not bad. Exactly. I was like, I'm like, we always talk about being kind, you know, and I'm always whenever the message is be kind, be kind. And I always react with like, okay, but like, what does that mean? Because I think being kind means something to different people at different stages in their lives. But we put this message out like, be kind. But I think we can all agree that what we really mean by when we say be kind is like, don't be a shitty person. Because we all can, like the table stakes of like not being shitty maybe are more universally agreed upon than what it means to be kind. And so I think when I started realizing I'm not a shitty person, right? Like I'm not going to go out and do all the things that would make someone a horrible human being. Just being malicious. I was like, I'm not. Malicious intent. I think a lot of it has to do with intent, you know, like what your intention is behind your words and actions. And I'm like, I, I just, uh, so I think that's when I started kind of coming into my own. I also started feeling much more confident. I was like, I'm actually a responsible human being. I want to get an education. I want to have a career. And when I started getting that independence, really getting into my corporate career and finding my way, I think also I started respecting myself. My parents were really respecting me. Not that I don't think they ever were, but I think they saw, wow, she's really, really coming into her own. And that made me less apologetic about all the things outside of my career too that I wanted to do or that I liked. And I think it just, it maybe it does. It comes with age, it comes with experience. Um, but I also met so many people here that didn't know anything about my background and um, they just got to know me for me and that helped me get to know who I am. I love that. I can, t I love that. Like people who got to know you for you and that'll get, it almost like it gave you permission. You know, I think a lot about like this show and what it does for people. And I think by having some of these like conversations, it gives other people the permission to be like, oh, me too. Like, I can relate to that. Like, I think yeah. a lot of it has to do with permission and not that anybody needs my Nikki Spo permission or your Norse permission. Like, but just like the fact that we're even talking about like these types of things, it's like, yeah, that is what gives people the permission to be like, oh, me too. Like, yes, me too. This conversation is so good, but before we keep going, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Sana Skin Studio. The best way for me to describe Sana is that it feels like coming home. Unlike traditional facials, Sana's facials are rooted in education, and I love this so much. Every experience I've had at Sana has been a chance to learn more about my skin and its needs. I love that the facials are effective while also being accessible enough to be a monthly ritual rather than a yearly splurge. I'm honored to be able to provide our audience with a promo code. Use the code THENOGLOW for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. So you are a brand strategist at Area 23, uh, but you're also like a Sports Illustrated model. (laughs) So where do you want to go first with that? No, I was, I'll go first with the Sports Illustrated, but I'm uh, aspiring, hopeful. I um, I tried out for their search competition in 2022. So they have this basically like open casting call and they've had it since like 2017 or 2018. And it's always been on my bucket list. And, That's so okay, cool. It was always on my bucket list and I never did it and I never tried out. And I did in 2022 and I can tell you about that, but I made it to semifinals. So that means I made it to like the top 40 of like the 1500 applicants. And and hey, for me, I was like, that's amazing. That's incredible. I can't believe it. And yeah, it was super, super awesome experience. And um, it just unlocked this like passion for, I don't know, shouting from the rooftops that like I'm really excited and proud of my identity and like the identity that I carved for myself. So let me go out and share that with the world. What brought you to that point, right? Like now this is going from an idea, from a desire, from a wish, from a a like a very, you know, like far away, possibly unattainable goal into like, okay, holy shit, I'm actually going to do this. So what was that like? It was December 2021. I am home for Christmas with my husband and my in-laws. And it was like a picture I had had in my head since I was a little girl. I knew that I was going to be my most authentic self just for me, not with an Indian man or with a Muslim man. And I'm sitting there with my in-laws and my husband. We're celebrating Christmas, which is actually one of my favorite holidays. You know, it's my favorite. And it's the most all-American experience I'm having. My parents FaceTime us and they're so happy and they're excited to talk to my in-laws. And I thought, I looked at my husband, I said, I never thought I was going to have this because I just assumed that I was going to end up marrying outside the community. And that meant that I would have to sacrifice my family or that I really thought that I just resigned to that. That's why I moved to New York. And I'm like, I'll make this life for myself because I don't know that I'll always have my parents and my loved ones in my life wow. because I'm going to have to make a choice and I'm going to choose me. Having them call in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, Noor, remember this. Remember everything about this. This is what you wanted and you have it. Uh, and so suddenly it just came up. I said, you know what? I said, I've never said this out loud to you. I said, I've always wanted to be a Sports Illustrated model. And he looked at me and he said, all right. And he's like, let's do it. You know, and he's like, so how does one go about that? How does one go about that? (laughs) (laughs) That's what my husband said to me. He's like, so like, what, what, what does that entail? And I'm like, I don't know. It's a, th- it's a search. It's an open casting. I used to always like look at it online. And and I just, just that day I researched it. And this is when you know the stars align, Nikki, because my biggest thing, and you can you know attest to that, I have kept my life private for the reasons of this double life. <laughs> I, and, and it's like, and because I just always felt like, okay, I have my parents and I are in such a good place and I love them and I respect them and I don't want to do anything that will hurt yeah. them. And I know that they've accepted me, but the community can be tough, right? So I don't want things out there in the world and, and that will that my, that my parents will have to deal with. I, don't, I just always felt that yeah. way. I kept my life private. I'm in corporate America, so everything's private. 
And I told them, I said, you know, I don't, there's, I think the last search was like on Instagram and you have to do, you know, they, it's going to be too crazy. I wouldn't be able to do it. I look it up. That year, they had created an app. They created an app called Swim Fluence app. And it was, that was the first year they had decided that everyone has to apply through this closed network app. And you had to post on the app so that the editors could get to know you. And suddenly I felt free. I was like, oh, oh my gosh. This is a public like yeah, yeah, yeah. public profile. I can post the things that I want to post that will hopefully get me noticed or that would be the, the kind of things you need to do, like bikini pictures, right. swimsuit pictures, and like all of these things. I can actually be my authentic self because it's a closed app. And honestly, I, I truly believe like the stars aligned because I don't know that I would have done it if it was again public. And that was logistically why I did it. But then it wasn't just because oh, I got married, but I just... I felt in that moment with my parents FaceTiming my husband and my in-laws and we're sitting there at Christmas, but my parents are excited to see us. And I was like, you know what, Nora, like you are you, like you have really come into your own and it's time. Like this is your time to try this. And that's truly why I did it because I've always wanted to do it. Good for you. Like good for you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, girl. Where is he? You know, I, thanks. I appreciate that. It was, it was awesome. Like, and I remember when I got the notification I like ran out to my husband. I was like, oh my God, I, I got an interview. And he's like, wait, what? For what? And he's like, for Sports Illustrated. It was crazy. And it was just, I think it's all that mindset too. I really just felt it. I'm like, I know who I am. I'm going to be my authentic self. And I remember, you know, thinking they asked during the interview. So like, what if you actually make it? Are, are you like all this, all this conflict? Are you going to be on a bikini in a photo shoot, like in a magazine or splashed over the internet when you kept your life so private for so long? And I said yes, because I feel like there's a purpose to it. You know what's so funny, Nora, is like I'm kind of like the opposite. Like I have been like an open book my whole life, right? Like I'm very vocal. I am very opinionated. I am very like out there and I share everything and I'm a girl's girl and I want girl other women to know like, I want to share all the tips and tricks with all the, all the chicks. And in an opposite way, I've actually experienced so much censorship. Like, that I have been like, I cannot be a watered-down version of myself. Like, I refuse. Yeah. Like, it is like, it's like poison to me. I'm like, I start to like have a glitch in my eye. Like, yeah. I just can't. <laughs> I like, I don't fuck with that. Like, I just don't fuck with it. Like, I do not fuck with being censored. But like, you know what I mean? Like censored in the sense of like, of being who I am. I refuse yeah. to be less of who I am to make other people comfortable. And that's making me giddy because that's exactly like where, like I look at high right I'm, now on, on, on yeah, like, authenticity. <laughs> no, but like I, and I want to surround myself by people like that because it gives me that courage. But there is still that part of me that, you know, and and I and, and honestly, actually, fuck it. Actually, I'm unapologetic about the fact that there is still part of me that is a separate wardrobe for when I go home. There is still, you know, that because because I also realize that, you know, being true to myself also means you just in some ways, you know, accepting your circumstances. Because if if you want to a relationship with your family, if you want that family bond, and I want it, and I crave it, and I love it, and I cherish it, then I am not going to you know, make my parents or make their extended relatives feel uncomfortable when I come home, right? Just because that they might be a little bit more on the conservative side. And I used to feel like, no, I want to wear whatever I want to wear. I want to say whatever I want to say. But then I also think I have to be authentic and say, you know, Norbert, you also want your parents in your life. So if that's going to make 
them feel a little bit more comfortable, I embrace it now. And I remember being really authentic with my husband because when I first started dating him, and I told, I'm like, here's the deal. This is the deal with my parents. Here are the things we are going to talk about. Here are the things we're not yeah. going to talk about. If you can accept that that is how I have to live my life, not because I don't think my parents know these things, but it just makes their lives easier, we're good. Well, I think there's a part of it that like is compassion-based. Knowing who your audience is, knowing that you're not going to change everybody's mind, and like there's some compassion at play, there's acceptance at play, and then there's also like owning the fact that we can be multifaceted individuals and not just be one thing. Like we don't have to just be one thing. Yes. Like I can be yes. part of this community and that community. Yes. And those things require different things for me. Like me being a mother of three requires something totally different than like whoa, who I am as a woman, like apart from being a mother. Yes. Yes. And and I think that's us also being authentic. It took me a while to get there. But then, you know, you you create your own. I know my parents know who I am. I know my husband knows who I am. I know my best friends know who I am. And that carries me. I'm like, I know that the people that work for me or work with me know who I am. That's really beautiful. Yeah, it really that's, is. That's so OK. But like, so you're also in the corporate world, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. like a duality of itself, right? You're like you're this gorgeous goddess vibe, babe. Oh, you're, and then she's being very sweet. She's no, 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 but sweet. you're also like yeah. a, who's in tune with herself. Like when I think about like a goddess, I'm like, so a woman who like is div divinely in herself. Like, and that's not to say that she's arrogant and like braggy, but just divinely in herself and I think that that's really beautiful but then you go into this corporate world which you know corporate America is predominantly white male right and yeah still yeah. like that's changing and that's amazing but it's still predominantly white yeah. male and here you are here you show up and you're in this world and what is that like I mean I don't even know what area 23 is yeah <laughs> <laughs> what is that no but I love you and my dad you and my, my dad at our wedding he said you know I just am so proud of Noor John she's you know, she's interning somewhere in New York City. We just, we just love that for her. We love that for her. <laughs> um, no, um, he loves for you, but he's like, I love that for her. <laughs> I love that for her. Um, and my, no, so I am a um, brand strategist at a healthcare advertising agency. So Area 23 is a healthcare advertising agency, which means our clients are all of the pharmaceutical brands. Right. So all of the drug commercials that you see on TV with all of the side effects being right afterwards, those are our clients. So like the Pfizer's, Eli Lilly, Merck, um, GSK, like these are all these brands that manufacture these pharmaceutical drugs. They hire us to put out their creative campaigns, to put out all of their advertising. And that's that's what we do. How did you get to that space? Like, how did you get to the space that this is what you were going to do? Like you went to school, you went to grad school. OK. Yes. Um, so, yeah, when I went to grad school, uh, I got my MBA and I got an internship in marketing at Pfizer. So I stumbled upon this. Oh, marketing. I, I really enjoyed it. I've always been in the healthcare space career career wise. Um, and I was there and it was great. It was very corporate. And I think a lot of it helped me find my identity because I was really I felt really good at what I was doing. And it also felt like I, it was something I could talk about with my parents. I wasn't like I had to hide mm -hmm. it or be embarrassed about it. I'm like, I'm, I'm a healthcare like, I'm you know, pharmaceutical marketer. In New York City, like this is like, yeah, this is like a legit job, Bob. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, then I know, but but what happened is, um, I also felt like I had finally, okay, I got, you know, I had, I went to grad school, I've got my MPH, I have my MBA, I'm at Pfizer, I'm working, and then the creative juices started like 
flowing in the sense that I also felt so content that it allowed me to realize that I want to do more. So I enrolled in night classes for screenwriting. And I always, I've loved to write. I've loved to write since I was a little girl. And so I enrolled in screenwriting classes and I just had decided that I wanted to write a screenplay. And I had this idea since I was a little girl to write a story about my grandfather. I think because I had such contentment in my personal professional life that it allowed the room to go pursue that. And so I was writing that screenplay while I was a marketer. And then my father got sick. Oh, When my father got sick, I went back home. I took a sabbatical. I went back home and I was helping my mom and my brother. And when I was sitting there with him after his surgery and during his treatments, I thought, you know what? Am I going to go back to this world of pharmaceutical marketing that, you know, while it was great to me, does it really inspire me? And it stopped inspiring me. My script was inspiring me. Um, And so through that, I still knew I needed to afford my life. So I decided to go on the advertising side because there are just so many creatives that I'm around. So I'm still in corporate America. I'm still dealing with these clients, but I surround myself with people that also are artists, screenwriters, copywriters, trying to get into television. And we're all doing this work and we love it, but everyone's got these side hustles of trying to pursue their creative you know, dreams. So something that's really appealing to me, and it's something that I feel like I do with my show and with my life, is storytelling, right? So you, as a brand strategist, are a storyteller, essentially, right? Yeah, um, exactly. But here you are writing screenplays. Okay. So let's talk about storytelling. And I'm talking about like literally, but also like symbolically and like what that means in life and the impact that that carries on your life. I love this question. Um, And it's funny. I think I I talked about this during my interviews for Sports Illustrated Storytelling. If you think about a movie, a movie is split into three acts, right? Act one, act two, act three. And act one, at the end of act one, it's a turning point. And the story is usually going to get worse for your hero. The hero's on a journey, right? A movie script is a journey that your hero is on. At the end of act one, it gets worse. At the end of act two, it gets even worse for her. It's when she starts act three, that's when the turn happens. And when I think of storytelling, and I always say, I think every person deserves their act three. So you got to find your act three. You go through act one, it's getting bad. Act two, you think, oh man, it's never going to get better. And then the turn happens. And when you're living in that turn, I think that is the most fulfilling place we can all live. And when we're telling our own stories, where I hope, you know, and then I say, I don't want to reach the end of the movie. I hope there's a sequel, a trilogy. I don't want to reach the end of this journey because act three is the most exciting thing to write. It's the best. It's like all the resolution, all the tension, all the, they're, they're finding themselves, the realizations, the missed connections or, or the misunderstood conversations between mother and daughter. It's like, it all happens in act three where you're really finding the aha. I feel like I'm in my act three. Like I could, I, you know, like there's I, that. I saw you. I saw, I'm like, keep your shit together, Nikki. Like, you're not fine. <laughs> I'm like, go on. But I really, truly feel like I'm at, I'm in my personal act three and I'm like, I love that for you dog it's been a long time coming I'm just like ready to be in the act three and I get it when you're saying like that's the it's just the I'm like turning that corner for myself in my life yes and I just feel you like I just totally feel you on it you know and and fortunately like this show is a part of it and like it brings me to beautiful individuals like yourself you know like where we get to like have these wild conversations about about all of the things 
all of the things. You can see it. You can feel it when someone's in their act three. Because it's, it's like watching a movie that's so good you don't want it to end. That's how good that act three is. And that's that's what I kind of like remind myself like we got to live life that way. I got one life. I need to experience it totally. all. And I can't experience it all if I'm not confident in who I am and happy right. with who I am and I'm really comfortable with my identity. But um, once you've gotten that, then it's like, go, go do it all. Like, you know, like you wanted to start this podcast, go start it, right? There might be podcasters, you know, United that will tell you that they've been doing it since they were a little kids and it's so hard to do, right? We hear that all the yeah, time. Right. I heard that about um, the Sports Illustrated. Like there are model, and there are, my gosh, that have been doing this their entire lives modeling and that they want this dream also. So it's like, you have no business being there. But I'm also like, you know, that takes, they get their self-confidence from the experience and the years they put into it. But it takes a lot of guts and a lot of confidence in yourself to just go to for just it. go for it. and to just go for it. And, and maybe that's why I was never like a clutch athlete, because I was always happy to like have it. I didn't always need to lead the conversation. I just wanted a seat at the table. That's how I have been about everything. And maybe other people will say, oh, you're not competitive enough. You won't be number one. But I, I don't want to be number. I want to be in all places. Like I want to try everything. You can only do that if you're willing to set aside your you know, insecurities or, or that I'm not the best at everything. Yeah. I mean, like you have to be willing to get vulnerable, like, and be comfortable, like getting uncomfortable, really. I read this like post was served up to me and I found it so interesting. I went down a rabbit hole, Nikki. There was this Hungarian scientist. His name was Laszlo Polgar and he was obsessed with geniuses. So he researched and studied like 400 geniuses and he found that what they had in common is that they specialized. They specialized in that one thing that made them known as a genius, and that's all it took. So he decided he wanted to conduct his own experiment, and he emailed a woman in Russia and said, would you have a child with me? And I want to see if we can turn this child into a genius. She agreed. Okay. This is called the Polgar Experiment. They had three daughters, Susan, Sophia, and Judith, and they chose chess. They said, we will specialize our daughters in chess. From the moment they are born, and we will make them, we'll see if we can prove this theory right. And they did. These three daughters, and they're still alive. These girls have TED Talks. Like these three sisters are like chess grandmaster, all the title. I don't know much about chess champions. Just because their father and mother dedicated their entire existence to chess. And, you know, it, they proved that it was nurture over nature. That you can, if you have a healthy child is born, they have the potential to be a genius. Uh, I'm thinking about like why I want them to be able to choose what they want to do. Well, and well, one part of it was that the the, the daughters always say that we willingly okay. wanted to do chess. Like we this did fall I'm in like, love where's, with it. Where's where's choice? Yeah. Like her. They, yeah, you know, the younger daughter was so immersed oh, in it because sure. her older sister sure. said that she just wanted to do it, but it wasn't forced on them. But my initial reaction was, oh, that means could I have been a genius? Like I was literally like, and then and the way the post was served up was saying, you can you can make your child a genius too, and like it, everyone has the potential to do this. And 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 then I got mad at myself. I was like, why are you feeling like you missed out? I you know I feel like I'd rather know a lot about a lot of different things personally than know like everything about one thing. But that's also why you have this podcast where you can, or even like when I was going to business school, I was like, okay, I'm going to Columbia. They are known for finance. I'm gonna, I'm gonna major in finance. And my mentor said, are you gonna have a career in finance? Are you going into hedge fund or investment banking after this? I said, no, I, I don't think so. He said, then why do you need to be fluent in finance? 
go be conversational in yeah. finance and go be fluent in the thing that's going to help you get a job right. afterwards right. and you know pay off your loans. And I have thought about that for the rest of my years, that I don't need to be fluent in everything. I'd rather be conversational so that I can talk to people like you and learn. And that hopefully me learning is totally. the way that we're all contributing to humanity. Absolutely. I, after Sports Illustrated, I did it. I did it in advance, but it like lit this fire in me, not just to like keep trying for that, but I love talking to women. I love connecting. I love, I mean, I'm a storyteller. I love figuring out all these things that happen in my life and what that means in terms of like a story to tell other people. And I wanted to get into it. I said, how do I get the opportunity to talk more and share more and connect with people? And this has been for me months in the making to try to, you know, get on podcasts and talk to wonderful women like you. But I decided one day, I said, I got to do this. I got to figure out how. I am not a public speaker. I have not been doing this for years, um, but I just have to figure out how to do yeah. it. You're doing it. You're doing it. I'm so grateful. I feel like this conversation has been so powerful, Nora. You're, I like, you really are like such a light. You really, you really, truly are such a light. And I think that like we've covered so many things that people can, that anybody can, can totally relate to and take from and just like from our conversation which kind of like took a bunch of different paths you know like really just learn from and just a beautiful life conversation with you and so I'm, I'm just so grateful for you for your light and for your time and energy for joining me today you are so welcome and thank you so much this opportunity to talk with you um giving me this light you you you're really wonderful This podcast was brought to you by Sana Skin Studio. Be sure to use my code, the no glow for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. More than a skin studio, Sana is a movement towards healthier skin and self-love. Thank you so much for listening to The No. If you loved this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. Words are so powerful and someone may need to hear what we covered today. And if you really loved this episode, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a review. Your comments are so important and valued and they give other listeners insight on what to expect on The Know. You can connect with me personally via Instagram at Nikki Sap Spo and The Know with Nikki Spo. My hope for you today is that you are fearless in looking inward so that you can be your highest, most authentic self and go after the life of your dreams. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.